Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast Series 2, Episode 3. Today we have Perry Parkinson. Now, uh, this is a bit of a strange one. Back on R2Cast Series 1, Episode 11, we had Alexander Perry, um, which we filmed sort of in the same house. Uh, and this is what's happening again today. Perry is all about six metres away from me. Um, but if you want to say hello there, Perry, don't shout through from the living room. Just talk to the phone if you don't mind. <laughs> Everybody. So... Perry's quite an interesting story, as we'll go through, uh, not actually from farming, um, but now is very much, very much in the farming industry, uh, in particular sheep, but we'll let Perry tell you about that. So could you just give us a bit of background about yourself, Perry, um, where you come from and what made you get into farming? <clears throat> um, so originally I'm from Holtwistle, uh, just in the borders there, it's in Northumberland, um, you know, grew up not in farming um a lot of my friends at school were from farms so that's how i sort of got into it eventually um so you know from sort of 15 16 years old i would go out to a friend's farm and whether it was you know starting lambing or you know driving our pit bikes around fields and looking at cows you know it was um it was just sort of started off like that and um i was sort of fortunate enough that the school i attended haydenbridge high school had their own farm and BTEC, you know, course, national diploma that you could get in agriculture as well, which counted as A-levels or, you know, your highers, I think it is in yeah. Scotland. Um, but so, yeah, so that's how it started. And and then it got to, got to sort of 16, 17 years old. And then I sort of realised I actually wanted to do more with my life than just, you know, shovel shit as it was on a farm. So um, decided I better sort of buckle down, get my grades and go off to university, which I finally did. Um, up at you know up in air there the same as you with SAC um, and it's just sort of spiralled out of control from there really so um, yeah that's how it started anyway just through friends really so Was it just livestock you're always interested in? Ever have any much interest in the cropping side maybe even at uni or when you were younger? I think no when I was you know I was very sort of naive and thinking that you know, all of farming was literally just beef and beef and sheep and that was it, you know. So when I was younger, we lived next to a dairy farm. And I mean, I'm talking when I was what, eight or nine years old, I think, you know, I would walk along with the farmer when he was bringing his cows down to get milk in the afternoon. And, you know, to me, that was me being a big time farmer. So, um, but no, apart from that, it was just livestock. And then I think obviously, yeah, when you go to uni, you get sort of, you get shown every possible, possible avenue, you know, and you get little tasters of everything. So, um I think, you know, one of my lecturers, I'm not sure if you'll have had him, I don't know if he'd left or not, but Gordon Soane, he, you know, talking about soils, that was a big a big eye-opener for me, you know, and like every farmer should know, you know, without soil, you don't have a farm. So, um, you know, it's the same with grassland as well. Jan Connell, she used to talk about grass quite a lot, whether you were measuring it or growing it, you know, and, um, you know, arable crops as well, it's all, it's all relevant, you know. So, no, it was a definitely, it was a big eye-opener and, you know, it set me up for, we'll talk about it later on anyway, but obviously when I went to New Zealand, it sort of, it helped me big time, you know, so it's, um, and it still has helped me to this day, so it's, it's beneficial anyway, that's for sure. I think that sort of going to uni um, and only seeing it as agriculture, certainly, certainly this, this area of the country, sort of south and west, um, it's probably a bit different up the east coast than that. Agri uh, livestock seems to be what we think is agriculture, Um 
but but soil for for those of you listening that maybe want to get into it, uh, soil and crops is the basis for which the, the industry is built on. Um, I just wanted to take a quick caveat away from Perry and ask him to move his hand out of the way. Uh, if you're wondering where this gorgeous hoodie came from, um, if you check, oh, perfect. Well, actually, you're going to have to speak and do that, Perry. People can't see you at the minute, so say something and do that. Right, what do you want me to say? Anything. Buy this merch. <laughs> perfect. It's just it's just because the, the, the camera only sees who's talking. So people on Spotify at the minute are going to be thinking, what is happening Um Perry's wearing unit merch, which is E-W-E as in like yo sheep, uh, K-N-I-T as in like with yarn, that sort of thing, um, or wool, whatever you want to say, which is uh, the merch of Carol Devani, who was on the podcast back in November. So go check out uh, the podcast podcast with Carol on unit if you want to see where he got that from. Um, but away from uh, Plug and X podcasts on the one at the minute, um, you're at uni uh, there, Perry. You went up to air from England, um, which is a good decision, choosing to go to the better country. Uh, <laughs> what, what what happened after uni? Um, was it straight straight away out of the UK, or was there other things in between? No, it was literally, I think we graduated on the Friday, and then come the Monday, me and my best friend Joseph, we got on a plane and flew out to New Zealand. So um, to us, you know, it was... 15th, well, no, what, 13th of July, so it was midsummer. You know, it was all going to be perfect and flew out there and quickly realised it was it was the start of winter and it was horrific. <laughs> um, it wasn't as, you know, it wasn't all these green rolling hills we expected when we first went out. So uh, we were straight into the carving season and it was a sort of a quick reality check, really. So, so, so in other news today, everyone, the world is round. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when you went out, you were, you were straight into Cavan. Um, I can only assume New Zealand, that was in a dairy unit. Could you tell us a bit about the farm? Uh, what was involved, numbers maybe, breeds? Yeah. Um, we went out there and we were milking, well, me and my friend, we were on two neighbouring farms, which were both in a contract milking sort of agreement with each other. Uh, my farm was the bigger one, too, um, milking just over 2,000 cows, uh, and that was through an 80-point uh, rotary parlour there. So, um Obviously, you know, same as New Zealand-based system, it was all based off grass, you know, and centre pivots for irrigation and things like that. So it was very, very sort of low input scale, but high output. Um, when we first went out there, that was when they had the first real sort of price crash. Um, you know, obviously out in New Zealand, they get paid on their milk solids rather than litres. So, you know, I think they were down at $4 a, a kilo, I think. So at the time it was, um, it was pretty bad, but... Um, I think it's a lot better now anyway. So, um, but no, a big, a big shock from, you know, two boys who'd come out from the UK seeing, you know, very intensive dairy systems as it was, you know? So, um, yeah, big shock anyway. On a 2,000 cows, I mean, it's, it's not unheard of in the UK, not at all, but it's, it's pretty rare. Um, how, how long does it take to milk it uh, on an 80 point system for that roughly? Yeah. <clears throat> About five, about five or six hours, I think. By the time you'd finished cleaning up at the end as well, I mean, cleaning up, you're pretty much standing in the same position where the holes that in the rotary parlour do itself. So it's it's not that bad. But um, no, yeah, it's it's quite long. And when you're doing that twice a day as well, it, it fair amounts to some high working hours, you know. What's uh, that? Four hundred an hour, roughly. Uh, but it said so. Something is quite yeah. rapid. You could change the speed of the rotary parlour. Um, but it's pretty, you know, 
out there you haven't a clue and you're just constantly chasing your tail but you know towards the end of the season there you can quite happily milk them as fast as you can you know so it's um no it's an amazing thing to do and I was always you know I would always um push people to try and to go and get the opportunity so with with the the, the fact it's paid on solids I've been trying to do the math in my head at the minute but but not getting anywhere you said about four pound a kilo now oh. solids is about 13 percent give or take uh, so I'm really trying to work out how much that is a litre so what's that about well I, I think about that. I said what four and a half I think it was four and a half dollars a kilo so that's so is that a kilo of milk sorry that's a kilo of milk solids oh of, of yeah that so that is of solids so um I mean, it was a long time ago now, but um, you know, if you if you think not New Zealand cows, they're not like our big Holstein Friesians here that are pumping out, you know, thirty five liters of, of milk, and um, you know, they were probably, I mean, I might get this completely wrong, but, you know, you're probably looking at ten or twenty liters as a total, you know. So, you know, when you take the equation out of that of milk solids, you know, I mean, I, I'm not really that sure. You could get two or three kilos maybe as a cow. Um, per milking or per day, should I say? Um, I mean, we might have to Google this after and <laughs> I think of it, but um, but yeah, no, that's at the time it was the worst they'd had, I think, for a long time. So, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, to us, four and a half dollars sounds absolutely crazy, you know, but um, but it's just that's the way it is over there. Yeah. So, and and on that, uh, I, I've Assume uh, you said it sort of wasn't Holstein Friesians quite clear given the, the sort of fact they're paying on solids. Was it mainly jerseys or? It was, it's a cross, the sort of typical New Zealand cross out there. Well, a lot of folk have jerseys, but a lot of this, I'd say the main bulk uh, Holstein or Friesian cross jersey, um, right. you know, and they keep that, they seem to keep that way through or they'll put a jersey over those, those cows, you know, just to keep those milk solids there. So rather than, you know, rather than quantity, because at the end of the day, they don't need a lot of milk. They just need the milk solids. So, um, yeah, it was interesting to see, though. We've, we've all heard of New Zealand system. Well, maybe we haven't, but but the, the New Zealand system certainly, I wouldn't say buzzword, but it's always sort of been there and something that's getting integrated quite commonly now now into, into UK dairy industry. Um, could you tell us a bit about what it's based on? how it works, you're talking about central pivot irrigation there, all that sort of stuff. Could you just tell us about how that all goes? <clears throat> uh, well, I think the main thing to talk about is the fact that they don't have any subsidies anymore, like us here in the UK. So I think when people talk about the New Zealand system and why it's so great, a lot of a lot of people would say anyway, it's the fact that it's, you know, they've had all this time since losing out on subsidies to really, you know, become these ultimate efficient farmers that are, great at saving money you know so it's it's a very ruthless way of farming i would say you know if nothing's performing you know if they've got bad feet you know here in the uk you would you know you would treat them and you would give them a second chance a lot of people would but out there it's very cutthroat and you know if they don't perform they're gone and that's it so um yeah in the scheme of things it's very low input and high output with the prices they're getting um but very much based off grassland management um, apart from apart from a roof that a milking you know a milking parlour is built underneath, there's no other buildings on the farm really, unless it's to house palm kernel that you'll feed inside the the parlour outside in troughs, you know. So um, <clears throat> all year round, 
you know, grazing all year round outside all year and then um, and then carving for a couple of months of the year. And that's pretty much it, you know. And how, how long would they be on a specific pasture for? Um, I mean, it depends, you know, it varies on the size of the paddocks. Obviously out there, the paddocks are quite big, but I, mean, I was running mobs of sort of, what, 700 you know, so they can first shift through a bite of grass quite quickly, you know. So, I mean, um, you know, you could have a size paddock there and they'd be in it two or three days, you know, two or three breaks anyway, and then shift off to the next one. Um, very much like here in the UK as well, you know, you'd probably be looking at 21 or 24 day rotations. So, um, yeah. And you mentioned subsidy there. It's it's a, a big thing at the minute in, in the UK, you know, Brexit's happening. And what does that mean? Now, I think we've been guaranteed it till 2028 from memory. Um, was it 2002 the end of New Zealand? That seems to ring a bell. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I feel like I heard it was going to be 20 years next year or something like that. Um, there's there's always that assumption that it's going to be hell for a while, and I think that's fair to assume um, that things are going to be really difficult for farmers because, it, you know, it, it's something that we've, we've expected, depended on to a point, um, especially in a lot of sort of Scottish hill, hill places, you know. Um, but there's also that argument that, once the bad's gone, efficiencies efficiencies are going to increase. Do you think that's true? I think it's going to push. It's going to it's going to force a lot of farmers to become more efficient. That's for sure. Um, you know, I know. Obviously, we'll we'll speak about it later as well. But obviously, me coming on the barring here, you know, that's one thing that I'm sort of striving towards is efficiency. And you know, if I can sort of teach or show young students now that this is the only way, I think a lot of farmers are going to survive, and hopefully, they'll be able to go home and either push it on their parents or have it in the locker for rent, you know, for when they farm themselves. So um, I think some farmers will be fine, you know, big farms, um, you know, with high output, they'll be fine. Um, you know, all these cooperatives, they'll be fine. But like you said there, you know, the small hill farmers that are pushing 65, 70 now, you know, they a lot of them will be relying, you know, solely on their, um, on their ground for the payments at the minute. So, it's a, yeah, it's going to be carnage, I think. But I think the more people are prepared and understand it, I think the better the UK has actually got of coming out like New Zealand, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you, so you went out to New Zealand straight after uni. That happened yeah. uh, straight away. Really didn't waste any time on that. Maybe went to see mum and dad quickly and then left. Um, how long were you out there for? <clears throat> uh, it was just... Just under a year we were out there, so a whole season pretty much. Um, and then we went travelling. We finished work in the December, December the following year, no, just before that, and then went out travelling in the summer. Um, so in New Zealand, we did a we did a whole tour around both of the islands there with the, the Kiwi bus, they call it. Um, and that, you know, it sounds crazy, but you can travel the whole two islands in three weeks and have seen everything. So it's... Um, but you know, best time of my life. And then we went out to Australia, met with another couple of friends, went round there up the East Coast and then flew home just in time for lambing time, I think. So it was no rest for the wicked, really. This brings you to reality, so. It's, it's interesting, Perry says it was the best time in his life. I have lived with him for six weeks and I've heard nothing about anything apart from New Zealand. So uh, he, he's not lying with that one. Was it North or South Island you were based in on the farm? Uh, we were Asperton, which is mid-Canterbury. Um, very much a sort of flat 
you know, it's almost like the East Coast arable site sort of thing. It's just flat, flat grassland, really arable. So, and did you work in Australia? Just travel? No, just travelled. Just travelled. I think for what would it be uh, six or eight weeks. I think we were so. Um, yeah. Is Brilliant. it northeast coast heading up to like Alice Springs and that? Is that Australia? Started off in we started off down in Sydney and right. then worked our way up the east coast right up to Cairns. Did the Great Barrier, you know, sort of tour around the Great Barrier Reef and things like that, and then flew home. Very very depressed, I'd say. So, and I think I have to ask you nothing to do with food or farming here, but um, it's always the question that I assume people that have been to both ask Australia or New Zealand. <sighs> I don't know. I mean, scene-wise, New Zealand was beautiful. You know, you can you can never compare anything to New Zealand. Um, I think Australia was a bit trying. Oh yeah, I don't really sound professional here, but I think Australia was a bit more wild, to be fair. Um, but I think we were very we were very lucky in the sense that the the people we'd met and travelled around with New Zealand with a lot of them had come over to Australia as well. So we managed to keep that same friendship group intact and I think you know I think a lot of it depends on who you're with and who you meet as well but um I mean yeah by far the best thing that me and Joseph will have ever done in our entire lives you know so um yeah I tell people every day if I can just go out there and and do it you know and he does uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> just just one thing you, you said Australia was wild and it, it actually sort of jogged my, my mind there um, you said there were sort of hosting Frisian cross jerseys for the most part. Um, was there any issues with sort of facility wise where the jersey side bring in any wildness or was it not too bad? The bulls were. I mean, when it comes to mating time, you know, obviously there'll be a certain percentage of the herd get, um, you know, AIs with um, with dairy semen and then the rest will be beef bulls. But, you know, at the end of, at the, end of the sort of AI and breeding season, the bulls will go out and um, you know, usually, typically, you know, in the morning you'd go out and get the cows by yourself, but at that point, you know, you need yeah, two people there, one person to get the cows and the other person to stand in the gateway with stones ready to stop the bulls from coming out and jump the cows in the parlour. So it's uh, three o'clock in the morning, it's pitch black and and frosty. It's quite a it's quite a job. So, but no, I'd say uh, Jersey's typically, well, any dairy breed really, aren't they? The bulls are very temperamental. Um yeah, you try not to deal with them as as little as you can, really. But um, yeah, you just got to be careful with everything. What was what happened with male calves? So, I think typically a lot a lot of people think that majority of male calves get shot. Um, don't get me wrong; some of them, some dairy calves, dairy bull calves, do get shot. Um, that's just the way it is out there. There's no sort of real market for them. Um, but a lot of the a lot of the calves that are born will be beef crosses anyway. Uh, they're called bobby calves. Um, so whilst I was out in New Zealand, because I'd had experience feeding calves before rearing calves, that was my head job as well as milking and grazing cows and things as well. So um, that would be my job as well as looking after these bobby calves. And, you know, you would feed them your colostrum for two days and then milk for another two days. And then at four days old, a big lorry turns up you load them all up, tag them, load them all up, and then they go away to the the factory works as it was. So, um, and that's that's calf production out in New Zealand. I think I don't want to say too much about it. But, uh, <laughs> no, it's just just out of interest because I mean, 
<coughs> you guys that watch listen to me quite often, um, probably not listening to me, probably listen to football I have on. Uh, no, I, I film this quite a bit in advance, and, and we're filming this in December, and I think it, it got made illegal here in the UK about six weeks ago. I think it was the end of October, and it, it just <coughs> just wondered what the sort of crap was. Um, so your your depressing jet lagged flight home uh, brought you back to the UK. Um, pretty much straight back into Lamin. Uh, where was it you were lambing? Uh, I was lambing up in Lockerbie. Um, I'd started lambing there when I was at uni. I think I'd, I'd actually gone through the NSC lambing list um, and got it just for a bit of experience. Um, and, you know, just seeing sort of different sites and different farm because, you know, every year leading up to that, I'd been at, a, you know, a couple of friends' farms, family farms, and, you know, it's never the same as, you know, getting a real job and working for someone else that you don't sort of know. So, um, so no, it was very much straight back. And I think, yeah, I think I'd been at home for two weeks and then was straight into lambing there for a month and a half. So, um, yeah, like I said, another reality shock when you've been sunbathing and drinking for the last three months, I think. So. He says as if he didn't keep that up. Um, the, well, maybe not the sunbathing in Lockerbie in, in March and April, but maybe the drinking side. Um, you mentioned the NSA, and I just want to quickly jump over to that. This will be coming out maybe the start of February, which... Um, Perry will have started lambing during, but we'll get into that. Um, if you've heard Perry say the NSA list, <clears throat> what that is is the National Sheep Association. Now, plugging my podcast again, jump back to NSA, no, not NSA, R2Cast number 20. Uh, you'll see it was with Kevin Harrison. It's all got the Clarkson's Farm stuff on it because he was on there. Um, the NSA lambing list is basically just, I think it got started getting populated a week ago. Um, loads of jobs, uh, some paid, some not. They're pretty open about that. Um, lambing jobs the country over all the way from this time of year sort of in a couple of weeks time some of your pure flocks and, and all that sort of thing all the way through to May time it's brilliant uh, I've benefited from it twice Perry you're saying you found was it just one you'd found or you'd done it a couple of times no I just did it the once and I was there for <laughs> four years in a row after that so, yeah, um, so. no it's brilliant I, and it, for you guys that I'm wanting to get, I'm not even going to say the sheep industry, wanting to get into livestock side, it's, it's a good thing to learn uh, uh, in general. I would strongly advise checking it out. Um, once once lambing finished for you that year then, Perry, did you wait on that farm or were you headed elsewhere? Uh, well, I did a little bit after lambing time. I sort of stuck around, well, commuting, um, you know, for the next couple of months up to theirs and doing, you know, the odd bit of silage or whether it was cart and muck or things like that, shearing. Um, and then... I think it was the the July I'd seen a I'd saw a job um as it was a dairy dairy herdsman um down in Somerset and I thought oh this actually looks quite interesting so I just applied and I think I think it was about half an hour after I'd applied I think I got a phone call um from John Wilson at the time he was the the head manager um and he called me and said, oh, are you available for an interview? So I jumped in the car and went down. And the next day I was there for an interview and then quickly realised when I pulled up to the main uh, reception HQ, it was, you know, it was Your Valley, the organic milk and yoghurt company. So I think, um, yeah, I certainly stopped for a second. I was like, what on earth am I doing here? But, um, but yeah, so long story short, I applied for that job and went for an interview and thankfully got offered it um, a couple of weeks later. And then that was me for a year and a half, um, sort of thrown straight into this organic dairy system that I wasn't necessarily used to. Um, but like I said, quickly sort of fell in love with the job still and 
implement implemented a lot of my you know New Zealand grassland based system onto that you know obviously being organic we couldn't spread fertilizers so we were separating our slurry and then as soon as cows had finished grazing outside the, the whole paddock could be topped and then we would um and then we would um spread slurry on that and then 21 days later we were back in with covers of you know over 3,000 uh kilo, kilograms kilograms so it was um yeah it was i think new zealand definitely made the job a lot more and i think it you know it would have made me a bit more attractive when i went to the job as well so so at eel valley um first off how how many cattle were they milking there uh i was milking 180 at the time they've got two farms so we were the sort of back end farm up in the hill um not necessarily the show farm so but yeah 180 uh freezings purebred freezings and does that produce all of the milk for all your value yogurt or is it bigger than that it's slightly more bigger it's um they're part of a organic milk buyers group called omsco um who technically buy their milk um which then sort of in a roundabout way i think comes back into the company that way so i think it would have been made up of a, a couple of farms you know obviously our two farms plus a few more but I think, obviously, for the most part, our milk anyway. Um, was, was there quite a few folk on that farm? Just because I assume it would come with more than just when it's got, when it's got a big company behind it like that. You'd actually be surprised. Only me and my at the time, we were the only two people on the farm, as well as our young stock, Rear and Mark, who was on a an independent sort of farm next door who would come in and feed. But apart from that, it was just us two, and it was the same down at the the sort of show farm as it was, there was only another two people there and that was it. So um, in the, you know, in the factories where they made all the yogurt and everything else, there was thousands of people, you know, but on the farms, there was five collectively. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's an advancing industry that, that is, is requiring less and less labour. Um, fr- from an organicity perspective, I mean, we all hear about organic, we, we see it on some of the milk we buy, whatever, and, and we, we want to get organic. But I think for the most part, there's a bit of a misconception as to what it means. Now, we're as I said, we're filming this in December. Um, Fertiliser, to my knowledge, is about the 7-10 mark, I think. Uh, and I would assume only really looking to go up from what some folks say. Some folks think it'll go down. It'll be interesting to see where we are when this comes out. Um, but it could be of a benefit to go organic and start avoiding uh, sort of inorganic fertilizers from a monetary perspective. Um, but what I would like to ask is what, what does organic production actually involve? Is there a major difference in general or is it just small changes here and there? Uh, I think, well, from what, to my, to my knowledge, I don't think there's that much, uh, that much of a change to conventional farming. I think, Medicines wise, which is obviously probably one of the main the main challenges people will face. Um, you know, we would try homeopathic remedies and things like that as well, just to try and keep things at bay. Um, but for the most part, you know, if a cow's sick and it needs to be treated, it's treated. But as of conventional farming, say a, you know, a jag has a seven-day withdrawal period on it for milk, in organic systems, you've got to times that by three. So you would have 21 days milk withdrawal rather than seven just for the fact that it's organic so i mean yeah some of it might not actually make sense to people because if it's not present in the milk after seven days why have we got to wait another 
14, you know, but, um, but no, I think there's, listen, there's a time and a place for it, I think, and it, it does suit some systems. It, it suited us quite well. Obviously being in the public eye as well, it, you know, like everything else, it, it makes your company more attractive, doesn't it? So, um, but certainly for the, for the grass management side of things, I mean, having no fertilizer did not slow us down in the slightest. You know, we were still producing some pretty, pretty decent grass swords at, you know, 21 day, 24 day rotations just by using separated slurries. So it just shows you that it's not, it's not that much of a hindrance. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it, it is interesting. And um, I think it, it's, it's one of those things I always think folk have a, a bit of a misconception about. And I'll include myself in that. I mean, I understand it to a point, but um, yeah, I think it's some folk are so pro-organicity and don't fully know what it involves. And I think some folk are quite anti it as well and still not fully knowing what it involves. But um, moving on from Yeo Valley, um, where, where did you, you said you were there for about a year and a half. What, yeah. what followed that? Um, sort of a lot of work and hours, I think anyway, but, uh, well, I think that was, I think that was the point I think was, was obviously just, you know, you're working from, you know, I was up at four o'clock in the morning and then some nights I wouldn't be home until nine o'clock at night. So when you're doing that 12 days in a row, it does sort of get to you. So, um, but no, a friend of mine from, from school, she actually messaged me and said, oh, are you still looking to go back into beef and sheep? There's a job here I've just seen advertised in Stram Ra. Um, I think up until that point, I'd been to Stratmar once for a 21st party and um, I didn't see much of it really. So I had a look at this job and it was a, a beef and sheep job up there in Stratmar working with pure Herefords and Romney sheep. Um, obviously the Herefords and the Romney sheep both attracted me because of New Zealand anyway. So I thought I'd give the guy a ring and go up and have a look. So went up and yeah, got offered the job there and then really. So I was quite fortunate in that aspect. So um, but yeah, I was there for I think just over four years um, until I left what six months ago it is now I think coming up for seven. So and that was predominantly a stockman job and it was um, running seven hundred Romney sheep, um, very very low input system, um, and then there was two hundred pedigree uh, line one bred Hereford cows as well. So um, we had on farm sales with the the breeding cows, heifers, and then bulls every, every February as well through, um, through Dumfries market. Um, and then the same with the, we had a hundred pure Texels as well. Um, so we had top sales there every September as well. So it was nice. It was a, it was a nice change to the traditional beef and sheep farm, you know, everything just goes to market and that's it. So, um, it was nice. How, how did you like the Romneys? I loved them. Um, I think that's obviously where half of this sort of efficiency things come out, you know, whilst I've been here at the Barony. So um, just a very low input sheep, you know, you could run them, run them on almost concrete and still make money off them, you know. So it was, uh, you know, there was 700 of them. I'd go out with my dog at lambing time and just me and my dog and that was it. It would be done a month and you would rarely have to touch anything. Um, and yeah, just made phenomenal you know, mothers and good lambs, good carcasses, and you know, I can't really fault them really. So, and am I right in saying they're one of the only breeds at the minute that I'm not going to say you can make money, but you maybe don't lose as much money as we do on the wool side of things? No, big time. I mean, I think, you know, if, 
a decent sized Romney, it's a four or five kilo fleece you can get off of it, you know? So, and obviously with Romneys and Merinos as well, there is the possibility to shear them twice, which a lot of people do. Um, we only shore them the once, but, you know, you'd still be making well over a pound, a pound 50 per kilo. So, you know, it soon adds up when you're making that many kilos of uh, wool, you know? So it's, um, yeah, it's definitely a, a much easier breed to sort of at least try and make a profit off than these lowland breeds. And and aiming for that sort of breeding side between the, you know, the Romney Texel and the, the, the Hereford cattle there, uh, what did that involve for yourself? Was there quite a lot of dressing or was it, how did that go? No, well, the, the beauty of those sales we, that we held, everything was actually in its working clothes. So they would come in, not a single animal would be dressed. They would come in from the fields in the morning be put into a pen and you know sold later on that day so I think that's obviously what attracted a lot of people that nothing was pampered nothing was fed they were buying what they saw and it would last them you know so I think that's the main it's the main problem with a lot of if we're going down this rabbit hole I think that's the problem with a lot of them um, you know a lot of these sheep breeds nowadays in the UK they're just getting a bit ridiculous and people are paying big money for something that's been kept in a shed and fed its whole life so it's um you know it's good if it's kept in that system but if a, if a real normal sort of hill farmer wants to use it it's not going to work so it's um yeah it was nice it was nice to sort of be on the the forefront of that sort of reputation as it were yeah i i completely agree with you on that i think that like we've <clears throat> we've all we've all got involved in shows and and, and trying to make our stock look better for a day out, that sort of thing. Um, but I think there's there's a bit of a problem on on these sort of showy sales. I mean, it's, it's becoming some of the figures you see, and they're always the figures that go onto the news and stuff like that. So then there's this sort of idea that, oh, well, farmers can just go sell something for 100,000, you know, and that's obviously to some of it, somewhat of an extreme. But I ponder the sort of authenticity of it as well. But I don't know how deep we should go down this hole without offending anyone. Um, <laughs> but it, it's true, and it, and and I, I'm happy to say it out loud. It, it just, um, it, I like the idea of how that was working at the place you were at, you know, and your working clothes, as you said. There's there's a lot more. How do I put it? Honesty for that. Um, yeah. Which, yeah. It's not hiding the fact it's been in the shed its whole life. It's, you know, it's I quite, I quite like that. <clears throat> um, so you're there for best part of four years. Uh, it must have been uh, up your street much more than than the 14-hour days from before. Um, you've now, well, I think, was it May you started with SRUC? Yeah, end of May. End of May. Um, so you've been here now six months, half a year now. Um, we're, we're, well, we're just into December now. Uh, could you tell us how working for SRUC came about, first off? Um, how was it? Uh, so the guy I was working for in Stramra was starting to slow down in not entirely sell up, but he was getting rid of, um, well, all of the Romneys and half of the cows. Um, so unfortunately, there wasn't really much of a job left for me. Um, but the plan was at the time I was going to go self-employed, uh, rent a load of ground from our next door farm that we'd previously rented and just go and start contract shepherding with other folk around Shamra. Um, and just before, already bought my sheep, um, bought my tops and started topping and then George Bakey, the head of SIUC here, he gave me a call one day out of the blue um, and sort of introduced himself and just 
you know, said he'd heard that I was I was looking for I was looking for work, and he thought he'd have the perfect opportunity for me. Um, and then yeah, about a, two weeks later, I'd spoken to Huma Climate, uh, my current boss, Southwest Farms manager. Um, just instantly had a you know had a good relationship with him, and then after a couple of sort of bumpy months where it was where it was a go and then not. Um, yeah, end of May came rounds, and then I'm I was here. So it's um it's been a, a pretty you know how would I put it yeah pretty interesting six months, but amazing six months at that. So and uh, P- Perry's got an interest in estimated breeding values, a lot of sort of progressive ideas and the sheep side of things, and we're going to get into that. He was actually going to try and get some kind of an advertising opportunity where he's in of his hat today, but he didn't want to wear a hat inside. Um, but uh, it's not just, I think it'd be fair to say you don't have a, a, a rake of conventional breeds here at Barony Perry. Could you tell us a bit about what sheep you're running on the farm? Yeah, well, yeah. So, I mean, conventional wise, we are still pretty conventional at the minute. Um, you know, if I ha- if I get my own way, then it won't be from us. <laughs> uh, no, so yeah, when I came, we were running 500 Scotch North of England mules. Um, they were put to a Texler or Suffolk and lambed in February and March. Um, we got some amazing lambs off them, which all, you know, majority were away by uh, October there. So, yeah, it, you know, it was a good system. It worked. You know, we've got plenty of grass for it, but there's a lot of costs involved with housing and feeding, obviously. Um, a lot of these mules at the minute, we're still at 500 now. A lot of the mules at the minute will be running anywhere from, you know, 85 to 115 kilos. So it's, it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of sheep to have run on your ground anyway. So, um, but yeah, so no, so obviously dealing with the Romney myself up in Stramra, came down and, and, you know, instantly wanted to sort of switch things about into my favour, I suppose. Um, wanted to get a bit of outside lamb and going for the students as well. Um, so started speaking to Innovus. Started buying a couple of Primera tops based on, you know, EBVs just to see if there was a difference, see if they were worth the hype, basically. Um, you know, I've wanted to try it for a few years now. And like everything in farming, you've got some folk who, you know, sing their praises and then you get some folk who completely write them off. So I wanted to sort of try it for myself and what the, see what the fuss was about. So, yeah, three Primera tops were bought. And then swiftly after that, I bought 200 Highlander mixed AGOs down from Devon. Uh, sort of got a couple of days off from work to go down and visit them. Um, and then, yeah, a week later they were up here. Um, and I've never looked back since, really. So, so could you tell us a bit about your same Primera, your same Highlander, uh, if it wasn't for the fact I loved you, loved you and asked you a few weeks ago what was involved in these sort of composite breeds? Um, I wouldn't know. So can you tell everyone a bit about what, what they are, why they're a thing, and what breeds are involved? <clears throat> a lot of it's, well, it's Innovus has stemmed from, yet again, a New Zealand-based farming system, really. So um, out in New Zealand, we'll start with the Highlander anyway. The Highlander is a composite breed of, I think it's the Romney, which is obviously why it was, why I wanted to bring it onto the farm anyway. But, you know, Romney was the, the main base of the breed, and then the New Zealand Texel, which is a slightly finer boned British Texel, easier lambing. And then you've got the Finn sheep, which is obviously a dairy sheep, which puts in the the milkiness and high number of lambs as well. So um, 
and this is all off, you know, no concentrate feeding, you know, it's hundred percent purely off grass. So that in itself is the main, you know, the main driving factor for me bringing them on the farm, you know, is starting to become a bit more efficient and save a bit of money as well as hopefully teaching students, you know? So, um, and with regards to the Primera tops, I think that's genuinely just a mixture of a lot of our terminal size here in the UK, whether it's Charlie, Suffolk, Texel, um, but they've obviously tailor made this breed now to perform perform well with no feeding, um, you know, easy lambing, um, quick thriving lambs that are up on their feet and sucking within, you know, thirty seconds to a minute, which I think a lot of you know, a lot of our terminal sires sort of lack one or two of those factors, you know. So I think, you know, on paper, these prime areas are, are the perfect top, really. But I mean, I don't want to say too much now until um, until I get my lambs out on the ground. But no, and obviously, like I said, a lot of it's, you know, driven by the EBVs as well. If it wasn't for EBVs, I don't think I would have been trying it, you know. So, um, yeah, EBVs are a, a big driving factor for the, for the reason of why I'm, sort of implementing them in this system anyway. And just just quickly, I want to jump onto onto EBVs. Um what what sort of you mentioned that they're quite prolific. What what sort of lambing percentages are you expecting out of the Highlanders? Well obviously these were mixed AGIs that I bought. So Mike Tucson, um who I bought them off in last year, he lambed them off two hundred and thirty six percent, I think. So it's pretty high. Um, it's almost it's too high, really. I mean, no one wants that many triplets. Uh, but like I said, I've tried my best to to keep them on good ground, you know, and not flush them before topping. So I'm I'm hoping I'm you know the sort of two or five two ten mark at best. Um, it's if I'm higher than that, it's you know it's not that much of a nightmare because you're gonna have plenty of students to feed pet lambs. So and we've got the facilities to deal with it as well. So. And we've got the grass as well. So, you know, it's the milkiness is there, but, you know, from back in the dealing with the Romneys there, you know, if any Romney had a triplet outside, I would leave it on. And unless it was, you know, unless it wasn't thriving and it was failing completely, that would take it off. But for the most part, a good 80, 90% of those would have reared the triplets. So I'll, I said, unless it's tiny or unless there's, there's sure there'll be a few quads as well, but, um, like I said, unless they're really failing, I'll keep them on. And, you know, with the milkiness there from the fin sheet that's built into the Highlander, I can't imagine they're going to struggle with it, really. So That, that was actually going to be my next question. Uh, with the sort of fin sheep in there and, and the, the quality of grass you've got here that you'd always tell me about, um, <laughs> if, uh, if you'd be happy setting out three. Um, but obviously it sounds like it, it's not not a worry at all. Um, from, from an EBV perspective, um, We've talked about EBVs on the podcast before. I say we as if I know a lot about them. Uh, no, we've had a few folk talking about them. A good one to check back on from a beefs uh, perspective. We're obviously just about to get into it in the sheep side of things. Uh, it's James Herrick, uh, who I spoke to around the end of November. So go back and check that one if you want to see it on the beef side as well. Um, but could you just tell us a bit about EBVs, Perry? Why you're interested in them? What they mean to you and what, what they do for a farm? <clears throat> yeah, I think, well, obviously, like, it started again at university there, you know, you get taught about all these EVs and different genetics. And I think it, it all, you know, if you're not from that sort of that way of breeding, like a lot of normal farmers are, um, you know, and especially 10 years ago, it wasn't, it wasn't a major thing in sheep at the time. I don't think, uh, you know, it just sort of starts getting you thinking and obviously going out to, 
to New Zealand there and seeing, you know, briefly some sheep systems out there as well. And coming back to the UK, it's it's soon becoming, you know, fast apparent that EBVs are the only way that you're going to get consistent productivity, you know, from your farm. So, um, yeah, I think I've just, let's like say, for the last couple of years, I've seen Innovis knocking about and I've wanted to try it, but obviously never had the opportunity. So, sort of, I've been blessed in a sense that coming down here, I've been given all of the, all of the tools and opportunities to to try anything I want on the farm, as long as it benefits the students and the farm and the ground, really. So, um, you know, I have got to thank SIUC for that anyway. So, um, but no, so yeah, EBVs, that's an estimated breeding values. It's, I think every farm should, should use them, should abide by them really. Um, and it's just a way of, just a way of sort of calculating how, valuable that animal is going to be to your farm you know through its lamb or calf production really so uh, these primera tops that I bought you know I'm sort of it was interesting because I was going in and I was picking these nice big strong you know long strong deep bodied tops and when you'd scan you'd scan over them with the ear tag reader there and look at their EBVs and they weren't actually anything that special and it was actually the smaller ones that would have the highest figures somehow so um after sort of, yeah, after sort of bending the reps ears quite a bit about which ones I actually wanted and which ones I didn't, we sort of finally picked three and, you know, on the sort of as an EBV, you know, zero would be the the national breed average, as it were, I suppose. Um, and anything plus above that is is good, really. So a lot of these primaries had, you know, lamb, lamb growth of, you know, plus four, um, Lamanese was a big thing as well. That's what I was focusing on next as well. Obviously, I wasn't here last year for the lamin, so I'm not sure how that went. Um, but, you know, typically, as a lot of you can imagine, you know, a big 115 kilo mule carrying twins to a Texel or a Suffolk that's been fed off, you know, a kilo of concentrated day and a load of dairy grass, they're not going to be small lambs. So it's, um, I think it's more just getting more live lambs out on the ground and, and um, you know, getting them away you know, even if it's a couple of months later, getting them away rather than not having a lamb to sell at all. So, and, you know, if that, if that yow is going to lamb a lot easier, is she going to get in lamb in the first service, you know, come the next breeding season rather than two or three attempts or not at all, you know? So there's, yeah, there's more TVVs than just, you know, high lamb growth, I think. It's, it's, it's interesting to hear different folk say what they're looking for. And, and in my head, as someone who doesn't farm, uh, as as you all know, uh, I just want to try and explain why what Perry's looking for. Now, the two things he mentioned were were uh, laminies and sort of quick growth. Now, the reason you'd be looking for that is basically if you can have an easy lamin with a relatively small lamb at birth, then or or smaller that makes things easier, uh, as well as sort of the 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 EBVs that have been passed down, then. You're, you're reducing dystocia, which is sort of like disabilities and part tradition that can lead to problems for the, the yow, problems for the lamb. Um, and then also you're sort of get, getting to that carcass quickly without causing damage at the start. And then that sort of high, high rate of growth instead of having a massive lamb at birth that causes problems everywhere um, and still gets the same target weight. Uh, so that's sort of why, why, why those things have been looked for. Um, so you, you've looked at, EBVs for for the sheep. Another another thing that 
I quite like listening to. Oh God, I, I've got to pretend I like listening to him talk about this all the time. Uh, what's for dinner tonight? Oh, let's talk about herbal lays, right? Sound Perry, that's fine. Um, <laughs> no, uh, you, you've you've always had a keen interest in grass, which, as you said, sort of stemmed from New Zealand. It stemmed, get it? Mm-hmm. This is dead tillered. Um, could you just tell us a bit about the importance of grass in your system now? Um, how you utilise that as well? <clears throat> yeah, uh, well, listen, I turned up here and we had 500 sheep. Um, lambs were away at three, four months of age and there was a lot of grass. So it was a case of, you know, why do we want to cut silage? Why do we want to cut all these lovely fields of grass for silage and bale it up and have it sitting there wilting away when we can actually utilise it really? So, um, like I said, obviously stemming from, sorry, stemming's in my head now, um, stemming from New Zealand and, uh, and Somerset there with the, you know, with managing grass for the cows, it was very much just implemented on the sheep instead. Um, I'm sort of fortunate in the way that a lot of our paddocks at the minute are set up in a, you know, nicely sized anyway for grazing, you know, mob stocking with sheep. So rotational mob stock grazing is quite easy for me at the minute, you know, leave them in there for a week and then move them on to another, you know, another pasture for a week and just keep it moving like that. And I think we've, um, we've certainly seen the benefits of it so far anyway. So, um, you know, coming into the back end in the winter here, you know, I've, like I said, I don't know what it was like last year, but, you know, at the minute, grass covers, they're, they're pretty decent. And, you know, like I, the uh, results I showed you earlier on from that from that sword out the back there, they were, you know, phenomenal readings, really. So I think it just shows you that, um, you know, correct sort of management, it it pays off when you need it most, I think. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I've got stem from stuck in my head as well. Uh, one... Last thing that, that you're doing sheep-wise uh, yeah. is pretty much lambing from February through to almost the end of April. Now, I know because I'm talking at the minute. Oh. And, sorry? End of May, I've got the Dorsets as well. Sorry, yeah, did I say April? I meant end of May. Um, when I'm saying this, Perry's actually, he's crying off screen. Uh, do you want to tell us a bit about how that'll go, why that's happened? And it's, Yeah. <laughs> What's that, the Dorsets or everything? Just just in general, the sort of, well, what's going to be a, a essentially four-month lambing period for you? Yeah, general stupidity, I think, more than anything else. Um, no, I think, yeah, so obviously typically on this farm, it's always been, um, you know, yows have been sort of typically 100, 120 yows have been sponged for fe- uh, first of February lambing, um, you know, solely on the purpose of early lamb production. Um with the remainder, say 400 remaining, you know, lambed in close suit in the 1st of March. So, and then that would have been it finished. Um, obviously, we're still sticking with that at the minute, but with the addition of these Highlanders that are going to be lambing outside, um, sort of half basing it on the students, you know, waiting for them to come back after the Easter holidays, that's going to be mid, um, mid-April mid they're going to start lambing. So, but from what I've seen so far with return rate, they're pretty much going to be done by... They're going to be done by the end of April, I think. So, um, and then yeah, one we haven't talked about yet is the Dorsets. So, um, I came here and inherited what, fifty pure Dorsets that they just got. They just sponged and and topped, and it was left to me to pick up all of the pieces. So, um, lambed them there in what mid September. Um, and like I said, I'll put my hands up and say I absolutely hate the Dorset when I first arrived, and I think most people would. You know, they just look like a 
big fluffy soft breed that no one's had got any time for. So, um, but no, come lambing time, as you know as well, Wallace, it was just phenomenal, really. So it was, um, yeah, the, considering they were all hogs as well, they were all kept pure anyway. I brought them inside a week before they lambed, started feeding them half a kilo of cake a day just to make sure there was a bit of milk on them. And um, and yeah, I think I'd lambed, I think I lambed one, and even at that, it wasn't that tight of a pull. There's plenty of milk there, and apart from one that went in the adopter for what, four or five hours, I think everything else was perfectly mothered up and turned out within a couple of days' time. And I mean, the lambs are going like mushrooms at the minute. So, um, yeah, I can't fault them in the slightest, really. So, no, I mean, I, I was someone who I wouldn't say had in the against horses. It's just not one I would have yeah. said. Um, and I remember you and I speaking about that. And uh, I often say when I drive past the field with the horses in it that the, the lambs are looking growing, really good lambs. Um, they, they, yeah, I'd be happy. Um, so, no, that, that's went very well. Um, what was I going to say? One other thing. Um, yeah, I, I actually quite like to talk about that. Obviously, if you haven't picked up already, I haven't said this, but <laughs> I assume it's quite clear. Perry and I work on the exact same place. Uh, Perry is the shepherd on the campus that I lecture at. So, um, yeah, that's hence why we're in the same place, all that sort of thing. Um, how, how it's obviously a massive change moving from a farm that is purely a farm to a farm that is a farm that also has a sort of to make reservations for education, for research. How, how have you found that? Found that? Has it been quite tricky or? It's... I mean, I think if I hadn't been at your valley in the past, I think it would have been a lot more of a, a lot more of a shock. But like I said back in Somerset, there, you know, you're very much in the public eye. You've got to be aware 100% of the time that there could be, you know, members of the public walking around the farm, looking at every move you make. So I think it's um, just like being here as well. I think you know, you've just got to, you've just got to mind that, you know, at the end of the day, there is students, there is lecturers, there is, you know, members of the public walking past, and you know. It's um, not that that, you know, implements anything. Um, but, yeah, it just it just makes you think a little bit more and just makes you, you know, it's can't get away, especially health and safety. I think you can't get away with um, with certain things, you know. So, But, no, I think for the most part, I mean, I, I said I love my job here, so I wouldn't, um, I think it's been the perfect, the perfect move and the perfect fit for me, really. So, um, and students-wise, you know, I'm, you know, that was me 10 years ago, really. So I can sort of empathise with them a bit when they turn up. So it's um, it's nice to sort of try and at least show or give students, you know, what I sort of wanted or acquired when I was their age, you know. So it's, um, no, it's definitely a, yeah, it's definitely a big change from a normal traditional farm on the coast of Stranra. But I think, no, I wouldn't change it for the world, really. I might not be saying yeah. that after farming time. <laughs> <laughs> Come June time where... You've just been laughing for a third of the year and it's coming up for shearing time. <laughs> uh, no, very good. It's, do you know, it's been good. Um, as I said, obviously, uh, lived together for a few weeks now, uh, thanks to Perry, um, picking up pieces of my broken relationship and not replacing that, but uh, giving me a house. Uh, <laughs> um, and just speaking about stuff in general, I, you get to know someone pretty well, but it's quite interesting to just sort of look at that timeline and, and see... The story of Perry, if you will. Um, but there's, there's, well, first off, before the the last two questions, it's the only thing I haven't given you a heads up about. Is there anything else we haven't covered that you quite like to talk about? Or 
I don't think so. I think we've pretty much covered covered everything. I think anyway. Not that my life's that. Well, yeah. The, the, for those of you that listen often, uh, Perry not being one of them because he doesn't know what these questions are. He likes to pretend he listens, but he doesn't. Um, there's two questions I end all with. Uh, I have done since 18 months ago when this comes out was when the podcast began, not as a podcast, but uh, as people in farming. Uh, some of you might remember way back in the day, starting with the wonderful Flavian Obiero. Um, I would write big interviews out on Facebook and people somehow read them all. Uh, because we're very interesting people, and then obviously the podcast followed six months later. But I think this is—I think it's like eighteen month birthday at the minute. Um, the two questions are: one, where do you see yourself in five years? Just what remember you're going to be thirty-two, uh, and also, <laughs> so where do you see yourself in five years? And if you'd any tips for folk coming into industry, what would they be? Uh, five years time. I think I said this in the Scottish Farmer. Actually, I think I wanted to be um, Farmers Weekly. Uh, cheap farm of the year if possible um, you know I'm hoping to try and work towards that anyway with what I'm doing at the minute um, but no, I think in five years time I'd you know I'd quite happily be in the same position and situation I am you know um, I said I love the job I'm in I love getting to you know getting to my stamp on the farm letting students and lecturers see it um, and yeah like I said at the minute I'm fully content in my job which I'm I think it's the first time I've been fully content, you know, my whole life with a job, I think. So it's, um, I think it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely come at the right time anyway, I think. So no, I think just trying to put more of a stamp on the farm really in, in the next five years and, um, and yeah, if, sort of watch the space and I mean, it'll be embarrassing if we watch this back in five years time and I'm not cheap for every year, but we'll just have to try and edit that bit out or something. But um, and no advice for, what was it, advice for anyone coming into the industry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think just don't be, you know, don't be afraid of put yourself in positions where you think you might fail. Because at the end of the day, you know, I'm not from farming, but I was, you know, I was lucky enough to have friends that were. So that was my, you know, that was my way in. But I mean, if it wasn't for that, I would have, you know, gone to university and started there. So I think going back to the NSA lambing list for anyone who's, you know, sheep minded, um, you know, phenomenal piece of kit that you can use and, you know, everyone who's on this, you know, everyone who's on the NSA Lamb list looking for people are fully aware that, you know, they're after people with little to non experience and they're willing to sort of accommodate that. So I think that's the main, you know, the main positive aspect of the NSA Lamb list is the fact that they're not, you know, these hardworking farmers that are looking for a, an experienced lamb with 20 years experience behind them, you know. So I think that's the main thing. But no, I think just surrounding yourself with people who are like-minded, you know, watching and listening podcasts and YouTube videos as well. And just, um, yeah, just try and just get out there. And if you can get out to New Zealand or Australia as well, or, you know, even bloody Holland, you know, to go on a dairy or something, just go and do it. You know, there's, you've got a whole lifetime to, to sit and wish you did, you know, went down a different career path. So, I mean, if you, if you want to try agriculture, you may as well, put your foot in the door and hope for the best, I think. So, and I think like I said, farming is a whole industry as well. It's screaming out for, you know, it's been like that for the last what, 10, 15, 20 years, it's screaming out for young folk to get in and there's just not enough replacing it, I think. So it's just the case of making it as attractive as possible. And, you know, that's what I'm doing here with the students is trying to give them the best, the best chance and opportunities, you know, ones that I've 
necessarily didn't sort of get when I was younger. Um, you know, just showing them that there is more to life than just being stuck in a parlour or, you know, dozing a sheep and getting an alarm off it, you know, at the end of the day. So it's, um, it's yeah, just making it more attractive and making it more exciting, I think, is the main, the main thing. The, the, the key points I picked up there was um, take opportunities and listen to the R2 cast. That was, uh, that was what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll try not plug. Well, I'm trying my hardest. But... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, yeah. And, you know, ask those two questions. It's almost tradition now. Um, it's always interesting to see where folk want to be, uh, whether they, they want to be elsewhere or not, it definitely sounds like you don't. Um, now, bear in mind your current situation is living with me and it's cute you want to be there in five years' time. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's, it's good to see you're happy in the job. That's that's obviously a major a major plus. Uh, and also, the, the, the where do you see, uh, sorry, the tips for people coming into the farm. Everyone says just take opportunities, open doors. If a bad experience happens, that's just another thing learned. So yeah, I, I, would, I would mirror those points completely. Just go for things, try anything, whatever. Um, and definitely shout out to, you know, people like yourselves and Kami and that who's in the, you know, who's publicly in the business, you know, shouting out to people like that to get advice, you know, even asking if they know anyone, you know, of a way to get into farming. I think that's the main thing is, you know, like I said, back when I was a kid, wanting to get into farming, unless it was for me not knowing, you know, farmers' sons myself. I mean, you know, if there was someone like you or Kami on a podcast or YouTube, you know, like, you know, you could drop them a message and ask them, how did you get into farming? You know, things like that. But I think there's a lot more opportunities now anyway, and there's a lot more, a lot more um, easier ways of getting into it, I think, anyway. So I think, yeah, definitely, um, yeah, YouTube, YouTube and podcasts definitely, I think, help in any way. Yeah, no, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, I I actually don't watch enough stuff. I mean, I, I've spent my life creating content. that I, I barely watch it, apart from tiktok uh for like 10 minutes here and there but honestly youtube's brilliant um like cami for example I film a podcast every week with them so she's probably try and pretend to watch all these videos they're excellent uh but no they, they really are i mean things like cami tom oh, graham hey. sandy brock you could you could you could mention a million folk um and i've only mentioned big folk there um like big numbers wise uh all the folk that are smaller as well that are Pushing what they're doing, showing folk what's out there. I couldn't, I couldn't advise watching it more. And as Penny said, get in touch with some of them. Now, to be put in the same light as Cami's quite exciting. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that on board. Uh, but absolutely do. I mean, I've on numerous occasions, I might not have a massive following, but I've got quite a core farming following. Um, and if you if you are looking for, and I have done this on numerous occasions, as I say, are looking for a lambing job, whatever. Message me. I'll try and help. I'll try and use the, the network I've built up online through lecturing, through being in the farming community anyway. Um, happy to help. And I'll also share it. And if someone sees it, then then brilliant. So so feel free to take take advantage of that. That's well, it's not why I'm here, but I'm certainly happy to do it. Um, but just want to say thank you to yourself, Perry. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Hope you've enjoyed. <laughs> Five seconds. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's really good to have you on. Good to sort of see that story uh, put in a sort of linear form there. And again, to everyone watching, um, thank you very much as always, whether you're listening on Spotify or watching on YouTube. 
have because we're filming this sort of back in 2021 uh, I can't wait 2021's over um, <laughs> moving into a new year that's not tarnished by Covid let's, let's hope um, I found out something pretty cool last week uh, whoever listens to Spotify you get the Spotify unwrapped and I find out um, how much I love all the TikTok trend songs uh, and how much I listen to them but also if you create a podcast you find out you're unwrapped from that side, as in like who listens to you, which is really cool. Um, and one thing I found out was there's 21 people out there that listen to the R2 cast more than anything else on Spotify. Now, I'm blushing about that. I'm not going to lie. I'm very proud about that. Uh, I'm not even going to try and falsify the fact that I think that's so cool. So if you're one of those 21 or if you're one of the, I think it's about 5,200 that have listened to it at the point at the minute. Uh, appreciate that, uh, as always. And I'll see you in two weeks' time for a podcast with Charlotte Mortimer. And we'll see you then. So thank you very much, Perry. Uh, and we'll see you next time. Cheers, everyone. Bye-bye.